Good morning. My name is Mari Kirk and I'm the Director of Communications and Stakeholder Engagement here at the United States Study Center. Welcome to our first State of the United States Studies, uh, State of the United States webinar, How Should the United States and Australia Bolster Collective Deterrence and Defense? Uh, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respect to elders past, present, and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of your country and pay respects to elders past, present, and future. Wherever you're joining from today, there's a sense of transition and beginnings uh, from a new White House administration to the largest vaccine rollout, 2021 is a trajectory setting year. The theme of this year's State of the United States report, also called SOTUS, uh, co-published with the Perth US Asia Center is an evolving alliance agenda. Against the backdrop of Chinese assertiveness in the Indo-Pacific, the need for collective deterrence and defense is front of mind. What is the best way for Australia to engage with the Biden administration to drive positive change in the region? It's my great pleasure to introduce today's experts on the topic. Ashley Townsend, Director of the Center's Foreign Policy and Defense Program. Dr. Huang Le Tu, uh, Senior Analyst in the Defense and Strategy Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. And Brendan Thomas Noon, and a Foreign Policy and Defense Senior Fellow at the Center and author of the Force Posture and Defense Industrial Base Integration Chapters in the report. We'll hear opening comments from each of them before moving to a moderated discussion and getting to audience questions at the end. If you have a question, please share it in the Q&A window at any time. While we won't be able to address them all, I'll do my best to get to as many as possible. Uh, so Ash, I'll turn to you first. Uh, could you please give us an overview of the state of play in the Indo-Pacific, uh, the logic of collective defense, particularly in light of the Defence Strategic Update. Thanks, Mari, and uh, thanks, uh, Hong, for joining us uh, from ASPE today for this US Studies Centre webinar. It's always great to include our colleagues across the ecosystem here. Um, look, I thought I'd begin with a bit of context. Um, a couple of years ago, the US Studies Centre released a report called Averting Crisis, um, which looked at the state of the US um, uh, budgetary uh, position and military strategic position in the Indo-Pacific and, and ran an argument that uh, looking forward it would become increasingly um, necessary for the United States to not only network with but to increasingly operationalize its alliances in the Indo-Pacific including the US-Australia alliance uh, to really shift them towards a strategy of collective defense and that was because of um, uh, mounting and ongoing problems in the United States uh, defense budget, but also the need for uh, the United States to really work with allies from a perspective of credibility when it comes to deterring the kinds of um, limited aggression or use of force in the Indo-Pacific that um, analysts foresee as possible in looking forward um, by China in the Indo-Pacific. Um, <clears throat> of course here uh, at the time, uh, that report was probably not yet the conventional wisdom, but two years on, um, it's now um, more or less well established, certainly in Canberra and Washington, um, that indeed that is the direction that the Alliance and Partner Network in the Indo-Pacific needs to go because of reasons of um, uh, shifts in the regional balance of power and the, and the fact that the United States can no longer unilaterally uphold uh, the regional order um, by itself in ways that perhaps 70 years ago, and we're thinking this year about the 70th anniversary of the US-Australia alliance, um, it of course was in a much better position to do so. 
Um, these comments um, are uh, uh, continuing to come out of the new administration and across the US national security bureaucracy. Earlier this year, we had the outgoing commander of US Indo-PACOM talking about the fact that the United States, again, would not be in a position to deter China in a conventional military scenario along the first island chain or in the Western Pacific, unless it invested substantially in future-oriented capabilities and, in course, and of course, also resourced um, the Indo-PACOM's push for a Pacific deterrence initiative, which would really build out the capability um, forward, uh, you know, uh, west of Guam capability and infrastructure for the United States to sustain a robust forward presence able to dissuade Chinese limited war and aggression in the Indo-Pacific. Um, we've also seen the current chairman of the House and the Senate Armed Services Committees make similar statements about the importance of the United States to work with allies and partners, given the gloomy budgetary situation um, that is now facing the United States. And of course, we're expecting a decline in the US defense budget this year, not really because of the um, 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 any sort of change preferences by the Biden team, but really because of the fallout of COVID-19 and the fact that even a flatline uh, US defense budget will be a decline in terms of um, um, when you take into account inflation. So we are seeing the beginnings of, again, a slide in US defense spending that will have flow on implications for the region. Uh, these comments and the fact that the Biden administration is seized of these issues uh, really redoubles the importance of a collective approach to deference and uh, deterrence rather in defense in the Indo-Pacific. Um, it's important to note as well um, that this observation of the need for a collective approach to regional strategy comes on the back of Australia's own 2020 defense strategic update released in July last year. Um, that was a very important document which teases out a much more ambitious role for Australia as a regional order provider, both independently in Southeast Asia and the, and the South Pacific region, but also in a multilateral sense, working both bilaterally with the United States as part of the alliance and with other like-minded regional partners to support, to shape, deter and respond to regional contingencies and to support um, 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 wherever possible and in multiple different ways, um, a stable, rules-based, sovereign um, 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 and secure Indo-Pacific region. Uh, so you're seeing really then trends both in the United States and in Australia in the strategic policy community towards building out a multilateral strategy for regional order maintenance in light of these major changes in the sort of regional balance of power. This is the context for our report and to shift now to some of the key purposes of the defense section of this State of the United States report and, and its key highlights, what we are trying to do in it is to really zero in on, on both um, low hanging fruit for the Alliance in starting to really operationalize the strategy, as well as looking at some stretch goals for the US and Australia in terms of where we wanna see the Alliance uh, bilaterally, as well as with others, go over the coming years to capitalise on the attention and the and the support that exists both in Canberra and in Washington right now for this kind of strategy. Um, some of the issues that we really zero in on, and we can get to these more in the uh, in the Q and A, um, are, are the following. First is at the higher end of the spectrum. Uh, we really see that it's important for the Alliance to continue to strengthen the coordination mechanisms and the um, bilateral strategic uh, planning 
um, um, uh, mechanisms that should indeed underpin a strategy of collective defence and uh, in the Indo-Pacific. And it's probably worth noting here, just from a definitional sense, that by collective defence, uh, we are certainly not advocating, uh, and the report makes this clear, an Asian NATO or any sort of tight US-Australia alliance when it comes to the high end of the conflict spectrum. On the contrary, what we're arguing for is much greater coordination um, of the kind uh, that surprisingly for many of our listeners today um, hasn't been built out in the US-Australia alliance. We've seen the US and Australia really develop extremely high levels of interoperability and we've seen that put to work um, in the, in the two, two, two decades of war in the Middle East with regards to counterinsurgency and the integration between the US and Australia uh, in the wars of the Middle East. But when it comes to the Indo-Pacific, um, we haven't seen that same level of integration at an operational level yet. And of course, the US-Australia alliance um, is an under-institutionalized one. Going back to its founding days, in, in, in 70 years ago, uh, the US and Australia did not seek to build out an alliance that was um, um, a, you know, fit for tight coordination when it comes to Indo-Pacific strategic issues or Pacific issues as they were known at the time. So we are arguing in this report that it is now time to sort of build out those mechanisms. And we've seen some progress in recent years. In 2018, there was the Indo-Pacific Alliance coordination mechanism set up at Osmium between the US and Australia that began this process of much uh, sort of greater working level coordination between the US and Australia in, in a range of regional security, but also non-security or non-traditional security issues. That is a process that needs to be capitalised on. Um, second and relatedly, that can absolutely be capitalised on in the maritime domain, both at the high end and at the low end. In the report, we zero in on the capacity for the potential, rather, for um, anti-submarine warfare and maritime domain awareness coordination uh, between the US and Australia when it comes to um, 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 operationalizing the alliance in different ways. I think here the framework that we use is one of shifting from interoperability to operationalization or integration at the operational level, uh, which I think is the, is, the, uh, is the framework by which we need to be thinking about these issues. And of course, it's not just a bilateral issue when it comes to uh, maritime security, uh, the capacity for Australia and the US to also and, and, and simultaneously build out those sorts of federated um, maritime security initiatives with Japan and India, um, as we've seen in recent years, um, the political interest in those countries increasing when it comes to these arenas is there. And of course, that would be a powerful way to really build out the military defence um, coordination that could, but doesn't yet underpin the Quad. Um, and finally, here, the other aspect of the maritime domain is the counter-grey zone coercion piece, uh, which has got a lot of attention and has done for the last decade in the Indo-Pacific with regards to Chinese um, um, salami slicing or other forms of low-level coercion in, in Southeast Asia, particularly in the South China Sea and the Pacific. Um, that's a problem set which, again, has been addressed in, in different ways. Uh, we would argue that predominantly it's been addressed through a process of capacity building by the US, Australia, Japan and others um, with regards to the capabilities of regional countries so that they can better defend their own sovereign interests, they can better be aware of what's happening in their um, exclusive economic zones and are more empowered to do something about it. Um, that's certainly been a pillar of it. The other sort of main pillar here has been the provision of direct operational or intelligence support. That's been newer coming. Of course, last year, uh, during the standoff between China, the Philippines, over the West Capello um, oil rig, which was a Malaysian chartered vessel drilling for hydrocarbons in Malaysian waters being harassed by Chinese maritime militia, we saw the United States and Australia 
uh, quite opportunistically uh, turn up and exercise presence in the vicinity of that incident um, as a way of dissuading it from becoming, let's say, escalated in one way or another by China, providing the sort of resolve and support to back a regional partner when they're on the front line of Chinese coercion is the kind of alliance initiative that we think we could see more of where that is in line with the perceptions and the or sorry, the preferences rather of our Southeast Asian partners, which is not always uh, the case, of course, and that's a really important consideration. Um, but the issue, I think, for us from an alliance uh, management perspective when it comes to countering gray zone coercion is that there is certainly scope to formalize the processes of coordination between Washington, say, the National Security Council, Australia's um, 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 uh, Australian government as well, uh, when it comes to building out uh, a sense of shared red lines, shared military or scenario planning, shared um, um, resolve to act in certain predetermined ways when contingencies pop up, because these things do happen in real time and there is certainly um, 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 uh, uh, a lot to be gained from a deterrent standpoint by having a playbook that is somewhat more formalised between the US and Australia ahead of time so that it can be executed in support of regional partners when that kind of coercion presents itself. Um, there are other aspects of the report, in particular, looking at US and Australian military posture in the region and defense industrial base integration, which I know we're going to get to later in this session. Um, but I'll leave it there, Mari, for the opening round and turn over to you again. Great, thank you so much. Um, so Hong, I'll turn to you next. Uh, but you've heard Ash lay out the change in the balance of power in the Indo-Pacific uh, and an escalation of a number of tensions and recommending for formalization uh, of a lot of the coordinated approach to things. Could you uh, give us your take on the broader regional temperature um, and particularly related to the Australian and US response to shared challenges in the region? Thank you, Marin, and thank you to Ash and Brendan for having me uh, in one of your events again. It's always good to be uh, with you even virtually this time. Um, I wasn't uh, an author of the report, but I'm here to offer, as Marin said, um, some of the regional perspective and uh, whether, you know, the, the Australia-US alliance, how fit they are for uh, the needs of the region, which Brenda already alluded to, I'm sorry, Ashley already alluded to that it, it's quite um, uh, dynamically changing and the Southeast Asia in particular is at the epicenter of great power competition and really at the center of the Indo-Pacific. So it should be of the utmost um, um, attention of the US uh, and Australia. But I think um, there are mixed views on that, how um, Biden administration and US in general treat Southeast Asia. Uh, let me start a little bit winding back before Biden administration, because I think that changes a lot of um, how the balance looks um, in Southeast Asia. Under uh, President Trump, I think um, most of Southeast Asian were growing uncomfortable with um, the great power competition rhetoric and how um, Trump administration treated Southeast Asia as simply an arena of great power competition. And that wasn't very um, well received in majority and most of the Southeast Asian countries, not all, because for example, Vietnam was quite um, doing all right with you know, getting closer in terms of both political and security cooperation with the US, uh, less so with some other um, partners. With Biden administration, that, um, that hesitation and concern somehow um, 
are giving away to uh, some sort, sort of hope that Biden administration will be able to play more of constructive role in the region. Um, but uh, so far, we haven't seen much of difference yet. I think Biden administration still treats China as um, a competitor. The, the competition rhetoric remains, although a much more, uh, hopefully in a much more diplomatic way. Uh, Taiwan becomes a very uh, front uh, line issue, more, uh, probably more than Southeast Asian issues such as the South China Sea. Um, so we yet to, uh, to see how that will really unfold. But one thing is important to know uh, that is um, unlike with Australia, where the level of alignment is so close as Ash um, uh, uh, detailed, and the level of interoperability and the strength of the alliance is so uh, robust um, at the moment. With Southeast Asian uh, security and defense relations, it's still there are a number of political issues, political and diplomatic issues that may stand in the way of deepening those um, security relations. Uh, I mentioned earlier Vietnam, which is on good trajectory to deepen Relation, uh, security relations with um, US and Australia and is recognized by both US and Australia as an important player in the Indo-Pacific. But um, you know, there is a bilateral issue with currency manipulation that the US government is, um, uh, um, is looking into and some remaining of possible trade investigation and trade issues that may stand uh, in the way for deeper security cooperations. Um, in a number of other countries, such as, um, let's say, Philippines and Thailand, who are US treaty partner allies, um, there are also political issues. There are some disagreement within the top leaderships there and the US um, primary values, which may become an issue with uh, deeper economic, um, the security cooperations. Now, uh, I think Australia plays an important role as um, you know, a, a constant partner in the region. So the US has been seen in the, in, in the region as um, an actor that comes and goes. And there are a lot of criticism about US engagement with the region has been um, based on the argument that US um, uh, tends to be you know, either engaging or disengaging and fluctuate um, uh, in the region. And this is not entirely the true picture, but nevertheless, this is a, a quite constant argument. With Australia, because Australia is next door, it's, it's right there. Um, of course, it, Southeast Asia should and could um, feature more prominently in Australia's policies. But at this, um, but nonetheless, Australia is a constant player. It cannot be accused of being um, in and out, uh, so to speak. So Australia plays an important anchoring uh, role in, in that regard. And uh, um, from uh, the tendency, the US would, um, even from the previous presidency, I think the US relies a lot on Australia's um, leadership in taking up not only leadership in um, the Pacific, but also hopefully in Southeast Asia. So there, um, I think uh, there is a, a, you know, a lot of space for Australia to um, become the link between, for uh, US and um, Australia's engagement in Southeast Asia. 
Now, I think um, the views of the region is that the US and Australia are very much aligned. And I think the recent development of the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, where US, Australia, Japan, and India are um, the members, uh, confirms the South Asian view that US and Australia are very much aligned and there is not much of daylight between uh, their views on the, the key issues, including China or a number of security um, ad agenda. I think uh, at the moment, uh, Southeast Asia has a lot on its plate to be really um, spending uh, that much time on thinking about um, external security partnership. At least that's the case in many countries, um, including Myanmar at the moment, but also Thailand. Uh, countries like Indonesia and Philippines are still struggling with um, containing the outbreak of COVID-19 and pandemic. So there, uh, there is a limited um, uh, bandwidth to think about broader strategic issues. But in the meantime, um, the uh, concerns about development in South China Sea uh, continue. So countries such as Vietnam uh, or um, even Singapore, who doesn't have direct um, claims but have vital interest in it, are uh, much more uh, uh, tuning and alert to those issues. So there is a wide variety of issues that concern Southeast Asian actors, but also there is a wide variety of factors that uh, may take away attention or um, be some, some sort of uh, disruption in, in their strategic thinking. I think um, in general, uh, with, within this uh, you know, very new Biden administration, there's a lot of hope. Um, on the more constructive role of the US um, and you know whether it's in partnership with Australia or Japan or other actors I think um, in general uh, the Southeast Asian would be receptive but at the same time uh, I think they're quite realistic as well on how much um, how prominent China features um, in the current thinking um, and re issues related to China, including uh, Taiwan or Hong Kong uh, and Xinjiang and Uyghur issues. But Southeast Asia, I think, um, is less prominent in at least in, in, the, recent, um, uh, in the recent months. So uh, uh, to wrap up, I think you know, the region is, is receptive and is waiting for new gestures from the Biden administration, including um, you know, appointment uh, of uh, ambassadorial roles in Southeast Asia, attendance to the later summits if, um, when they go uh, um, ahead. So a lot of diplomatic and political gestures are, are being um, uh, expected from the Biden administration. Uh, so, so we can see um, uh, where the security development can uh, proceed from here. Um, I might stop here and uh, let Brendan uh, go ahead with his presentation and happy to um, answer any questions later on. Thank you. Great, thanks. Yeah, it, um, I think it's, I asked about, you know, the regional perspective. It sounds very much like at the moment, it's complicated is where it sits, uh, but there's hope and there's opportunities, uh, especially with the Biden administration. And you specifically mentioned Taiwan, uh, which we will pick uh, back up on that in the audience Q&A at the end. Uh, but over to you, Brandon, can you give outline how defense industrial base integration, technolo technology based integration and joint projects like SciFire come into play? Great. Thanks, Mari. And glad to be sharing the stage with Ash and Hong this morning discussing these issues. 
Um, so yeah, as, as, as you've said, Mari, I'll be focusing my brief remarks this morning on Australia-US defense cooperation and integration, something I've been working on for several years here at the center. So first off, why do we think uh, defense industrial integration is important and why has it been championed by some actors in the United States political and strategic systems and Australia's over the last few years? Well, simply a collective approach to defense industrial integration between the United States and its close allies is essential for the United States to maintain their conventional military edge in the Indo-Pacific. One stat I like to use here to kind of uh, focus the mind about how much the region's military and strategic overall balance is changing uh, is that China is on the path to match, if not surpass, the combined R&D, research and development spending of the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand by the mid-2020s. Now, COVID will change a bit of that, but the general trend is pretty clear. Um, and much of this rapid growth in research and development spending is flowing on to an increasingly technologically capable military force that is benefiting from China's large industrial and manufacturing base, its advantages in labor costs and standards, and relative cost advantages as well. So for Australia and the United States and uh, their partners and allies, Harnessing new technologies, integrating them into their defense forces, and really importantly, ensuring they are affordable for middle powers like Australia are crucial steps to maintaining a favorable balance of power in the region. So just to sum up, essentially for the United States and its allies to maintain their military technological edge, Washington must aggregate the research and development and industrial bases of its allies and incentivize the co-development of new capabilities over the medium term. Actors in Congress and the U.S. Congress, primarily the former jo uh, Senator John McCain, recognized this challenge in around 2016, 2017, and thought of a new legislature, sort of, let me rephrase that, turned to an old legislative tool called the National Technology and Industrial Base as a way to address it. Um, a few things to note here quickly what the NTIB is and isn't. It's a legislative framework that was expanded to, to include Australia and the UK on top of Canada, which had been a part of it for many decades previously in 2017. Um, so John McCain at the time saw it as a vehicle or really uh, sometimes I describe it as a legislative vessel to be expanded once Australia and the United Kingdom were included. Importantly, when we were included in 2017, um, it did not really make any material day-to-day -day change to, in, uh, much at all in terms of our defense industrial base, defense industrial relationship with the, and trade with the United States. The hope at the time was that the NTIB would provide cover and political space for further reforms to export control issues in the U.S., including a relative uh, defense-free trade zone was the hope between the United States, Canada, the U.K., and Australia. So that's kind of the space we're in now. We were included in 2017, uh, but we are now in a space where they're trying to figure out how to actually operationalize it. Um, however, you know, this, we get to, this leads us to what the current barriers are. Even though we're, we've established a legislative framework, there's still all the previous barriers are still in place. Um, things like ITAR controls, which seek to control the intellectual property and critical technology that the United States sees as important to its own national security, which are extraterritorial in nature, hence they are extend beyond the US borders, uh, are still in place. And that's largely a Cold War tool that still remains and hasn't really been reformed to date. 
Um, this really remains a massive burden in the day-to-day -day functioning of the defense industrial relationship. And importantly, it remains a burden for both small and medium enterprises, as well as the larger defense primes um, themselves who have a lot of trouble transferring uh, workforce between, let's say, the United States and Australia and intellectual property. It all is sort of very segregated. Um, and importantly, these ITAR controls are beginning to increasingly disincentivize small, innovative defense companies from attempting to enter the U.S. market from Australia and sometimes vice versa. We're also seeing the growth of Buy American forces in the United States. The Biden administration has made revitalizing the middle class a centerpiece of its domestic and foreign policies. This includes Congress is now considering legislation that may increase the rules and provisions governing the percentage of American-made content in its defense equipment. Um, so this is traditionally being sometimes around 50% or 35% uh, that has to be made in America. There are now legislation and forces in Congress pushing that uh, it will eventually phase in 100% of uh, U.S. Def purchased defense equipment would have to be uh, made in the United States. While there has been some exemptions for allies in the past and in the current legislation, it's still really not clear the full extent of the changes this legislation, and importantly, it's not passed yet, but if it does get passed, uh, what, what the full extent of changes it may introduce in terms of the barriers it may impose on allies being participants in U.S. defense supply chains. But I'll, and I'll start to conclude here, but I don't really want to leave you with all negative points because I would argue there are some real positive developments in this space as well, a bit, a bit in kind of narrow ways rather than what the NTIB was envisioned to be uh, changing the day-to-day -day relationship. There's still a lot of work going on in very specialized projects um, that, are, uh, that are attempting to demonstrate the importance of this kind of uh, further defense industrial integration. This is also one of the ways doing these pilot projects that uh, I think uh, officials on either side of the United States and Australia and as well as the UK and Canada are trying to show the benefits of the NTIB. I would say the first major success story uh, was the funding of a rarest facility last year in Australia through the US National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, this was technically done under the auspices of the NTIB or at least the NTIB I think was and this is an important point, it was used as a selling point for senators who were skeptical of such a critical project and the potential loss of U.S. jobs taking place outside of the United States. So if you look at the Dear, uh, dear Member letters and the, and the lobbying that was going on around this, um, it was often cited as Australia was a member of the NTIB, hence they are trusted, they're part of the United States defense industrial base, and hence we need to be moving forward with this uh, critical project. So it wasn't necessarily that the NTIB made any legislative changes, it was more just used as a, a trust vehicle, if, if that makes sense. Um, another significant development was the recent transition, and as Mari alluded to in her introduction um, for this, this presentation, of a recent, uh, of a joint Australia-US hypersonics research program at the University of Queensland from an R&D venture to a testing and development partnership. Uh, so this was originally called the High Fire Program, and it involved the Australian government, industry, and primarily the US Air Force, which has been taking place over the last 15 years. Um, we hear a lot about hypersonics now, but it's interesting. It's not a it's not a necessarily a brand new technology. A lot of the basic research has been going on for quite some time, but we are seeing the transition now to working uh, prototypes. 
So uh, the government did announce last year that they were transitioning the high fire program to the sci fire program. The names don't matter too much. There's lots of acronyms. Um, but the big part is that it was doing basic R&D and now we're looking at doing uh, building prototypes and demonstrating the utility of the technology that has been developed into a program of record and manufacturing that is part of the NTIB would benefit from. The key part here too is trying to figure out how these prototypes can then be manufactured in places like Australia and the, and the United States without uh, things like ITAR impacting it. Uh, the one thing to say just briefly on this is that while the NTIB played a role, it was really this program was done through a specialized Pentagon program that looks at key uh, technologies being developed in allies um, that kind of bypasses a lot of the barriers. So while it's a positive development and it was touted as further defense industrial integration, um, it was done through kind of a specialized mechanism. And then finally, I think I'll talk briefly here, but there was lots of news about this last week, which was that uh, there was a recent announcement from the government following the release of the DSU that it intends to invest up to $1 billion to build the capacity to manufacture guided munitions in Australia. I think this is a really great opportunity uh, to demonstrate what the NTIB might be able to do. Because um, while the final contractor and partner is yet to be announced, the NTIB could be useful here in facilitating any IP and knowledge transfer if it is a US-based enterprise that eventually gets that contract. But um, that's the sort of thing that the NTIB years ago was uh, always you know, thought to, uh, to champion. And, uh, and if we are to be able to afford to continue the kind of high-tech military that we are uh, building in Australia, you know, not only building a sovereign defense enterprise in Australia, but also trying to uh, make the entire defense enterprise that you were usually integrated with our allies affordable is really important. So Mari, I'll stop there and happy to take any questions. Great. Thanks so much, Brendan. And it's really encouraging when we often talk about the strengths of the U.S.-Australia relationship, having those, uh, you know, proof points of, you know, sci-fire and the rare earths agreement to, to show, show that there's something quantifiable and something that we can really see as a result of that strong relationship. It's very encouraging. Um, Ash, I'm going to turn to you first uh, for these questions. But in your chapter, uh, the one that you and Brendan co-wrote in SOTUS, uh, you called for a level a strategy of collective defense for Australia and the US to advance operation, operational level coordination within and beyond the alliance to facilitate a collective approach to deterrence and defense in the Indo-Pacific. So what do you think is the right level of ambition for allied efforts to advance a collective defense strategy in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, look, Mario, I'll just be brief here. Um, but I think the the um, the point that I was I was um, alluding to earlier with regards to maritime security is a good example. Um, currently, we're in a situation where the U.S. and Australia have um, integrated, um, if you like, on the battlefield in the Middle East, um, and have coordinated closely in certain regional um, operations, notably. Um, in Mawari after the, uh, uh, the, in the sort of counterinsurgency operation in the Philippines in recent years, um, but really haven't developed the sort of close operational level coordination um, in terms of mechanisms or in terms of regional um, operations, um, peacetime, obviously, uh, operations in the Indo-Pacific that have a deterrence signal attached to them uh, that they could. And so the level of ambition for the Alliance really needs to be to start uh, bilaterally and in time multilaterally to build out what we might call peacetime deterrence operations or, 
or peacetime regional security operations in the Indo-Pacific that have a tangible impact on the provision of security goods to the region. Now, of course, we do this independently um, uh, 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 um, already, the, but we, both Australia, the United States, um, Japan, other, um, you know, let's call them capable security providers in the region. Um, but for Australia and the United States, what we could do much better is to federate or formalize or coordinate along geographic or functional areas um, with regards to responsibilities, roles, mission sets, and then the combined actions uh, that we will take, the combined capabilities that we will bring to bear in rolling out the, uh, uh, those kinds of um, uh, effects, deterrence effects in the region. For example, um, during the Cold War, it was uh, customary for, uh, uh, for the US rather and Japan um, uh, to formally agree to a division of roles and responsibilities when it came to maritime domain awareness, anti-submarine warfare, and the coordination of potential blockades against uh, Soviet assets in the region were that to be necessary. There are a couple of reasons for this. On the one hand, it was made sense for countries to pool and coordinate their resources according to their natural strengths and size in the case of the US and Japan. Um, but there were two other reasons as well. Uh, one was that it provided a way for the Japanese Navy to do, let's say, more straightforward tasks, um, um, more commensurate with its capabilities to allow the United States to get out there more broadly and, and do more of the heavy lifting when it came to maritime security, the tracking of Soviet submarines further afield during the Cold War. And second is from the standpoint of credibility, which is a key component when you're thinking about deterrence, defense in the Indo-Pacific or in any, in any context rather, um, the fact that regional countries have skin in the game and are willing and able to play a role there sends a very powerful signal when it comes to the calculations of an adversary. Um, you often hear the point made um, in questioning US commitment in the region or trying to understand US commitment in the region um, that, you know, what is the, you know, to, to what extent would the United States incur direct costs on itself? You see this in the nuclear conversation all the time, trade San Francisco for for Seoul, for example, when it comes to the provision of extended deterrence. And when you have the collective buy-in of a local alliance partner um, that unquestionably has an interest in defending its own direct national security. And of course, um, the national security of countries like Australia and Japan is really now dovetailed to the quality of the regional order in which we exist. That is a powerful credibility sign. So it's moving towards that mindset, which is the right level of ambition. And in terms of something concrete, which we could you know, revisit in a couple of years, Murray, to see how we're going here, I think uh, the one example bilaterally is, is uh, maritime security. The stitching up of um, maritime domain awareness of maritime related um, intelligence security and reconnaissance provision and the provision of that to regional partners and to each other in an operationally relevant um, 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 format, uh, moving towards anti-submarine warfare um, um, operations in peacetime. Now, of course, anti-submarine warfare operations in peacetime don't look a lot like they do in a crisis. Um, what that would really be about is um, moving from something like the six exercises, actually, that Australia and the United States are annually involved in when it comes to ASW in the Indo-Pacific region, moving from those static set pieces that build interoperability to having something that is much more 
um, uh, seamless, uh, persistent, um, coordinated involvement of multiple partners um, that sends a signal to the region as well as to China that the Alliance and Partner Network uh, is able and willing to invest significant resources into a baseline provision of high-end security and defense in the region. I think that's achievable. Um, there's a lot of enablers that are needed to get there. Um, we're seeing, you know, for example, in the Australia-Japan relationship, um, the conclusion of a multi-year process to establish a reciprocal access agreement. That is a core input and necessary, but by no means sufficient condition for the kind of you know, coordinated security future that I'm teasing out here to be multilateralized to the trilateral, Australia, US, Japan trilateral. Likewise with India, we're seeing real effort to build the capacity for Australia and India to share sensitive intelligence, to communicate um, 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 between militaries in operationally significant scenarios. But again, there it's a long path, there's a long way to go. So before you can actually build this thing out into being multilateral, in the Indo-Pacific, which is, if you like, the gold standard, the level of ambition for the alliance multilaterally, um, it's really important to get those enablers, that legislation, those coordination mechanisms at a bilateral and trilateral level in place. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Ash. Um, and I'll pivot to the Quad for a minute. We've already mentioned the Quad a little bit today. Um, but Huang, uh, for you first, and we'll see if others have something to add. But from and, and also in your remarks, Wong, you mentioned, uh, you know, the fact that COVID is affecting so many other countries in the Indo-Pacific right now, um, and that impacts their perception of a lot of priorities and next steps. Uh, from a US, Australia, India, Japan quadrilateral perspective, are there specific goals that we should be working towards in the Australia-US alliance um, and or with key security partners like the Quad? And how do you think these would be received in Southeast Asia? Yes, so the Quad, you know, the Quad has had um, a hard time picking up from the first time because the uh, security interests of the four members are so diverse. And in the first Quad 1.0, so to speak, when it, um, the four countries came together really first time to assist in Indian Ocean tsunami, that was really um, an exercise of what we call unilateralism. It's, it's um, a, you know, a very focused um, one one focus oriented. Um, it was uh, you know assist, humanitarian assistance, um, but then you know it, it was agile. It was like uh, ad hoc. It wasn't institutionalized back then. But the potential of the quad is is huge, uh, and therefore I think that's um, that's the general discussion about quad. It's more about what it can do as four countries together than it it really has done or is going to do. Now, we have now quad so-called uh, 2.0. It's very different from the, the quad over 10 years ago. Um, and, um, no, sorry, 20 years ago. Uh, and now um, we had elevated to the ministerial level, now to the, to the head of state's level meetings. And uh, the, the, the most recent meeting come um, with some offers of providing vaccines, like quad countries providing vaccines to, to the broader region in the Indo-Pacific. 
Um, so what has come all the way, or at least its discussion from, um, you know, humanitarian assistance to a potential, you know, security framework to an institutionalized organization to a provider of good, it would be it uh, vaccines or um, infrastructure. So it's anywhere, uh, very much encompassing. Um, structure. We don't really know where Quad can go and will go. Um, we know that there is commitment uh, from the four countries to do more, but how much they can do is still, um, you know, uh, is still up in the air. I think um, the regional countries, the Southeast Asian has had ambivalent uh, relationship with um, or views of the Quad, and I did a study on the all 10 ASEAN countries' perception of the Quad um, a couple of years back, and I think the the results of the the surveys and then interviews I've done um, are still valid. Uh, number one is that uh, the views of the Quad among the ten ASEAN countries are very different, as I um, uh, alluded to during my opening remarks. The region is very diverse, and its uh, individual members' uh, nas national security interests would be very diverse, and their views on the uh, you know, regional balance of power are quite different too. So the Quad is not an exception in that uh, regard. Uh, second of all, I think Vietnam uh, was setting out as uh, most supportive from the study, um, while uh, some other countries were concerned that Quad will take away as in centrality. I think by now that, um, that worry has subsided a little bit, where that Quad would take away as in centrality. It's, it's not really a um, a, a sound argument anymore. But I think the regional actors have learned to um, kind of live with quiet and accept its uh, existence that's going to last rather than disappear as an ocean foam, as some Chinese uh, diplomat has described it. But I think um, also the challenge for the quad is over-promising, potential of uh, over-promising and overreaching too much, uh, too many agendas. Um, we don't know what it can transform into but certainly if you know and that's still only in the realm of, of commentary that if the quad uh, becomes some sort of Asian NATO that wouldn't be re really well received neither, neither possible nor well received uh, uh, among Southeast Asia but I, I don't think that's also um, the current ambition of um, the quad members. I think they are they are still in in the phase of you know trying to work out what works, what would be well received, and what would be a good contribution for not not, not only for them to cooperate and really uh, coordinate and um, align their also for very different uh, interests, but also what would be well collectively received uh, in the broader Indo Pacific region. Thanks. And one quick follow-up question for Brendan, and then I'll uh, switch over to audience questions. Uh, but when uh, the first Quad Summit happened, uh, there were two critical working groups that were formed out of that. Uh, the Quad Climate Working Group and the Quad Critical and Emerging Technology Working Group. So, Brendan, how significant is the working group of critical technology and what can or should come of it? Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's a great question. And it, it dovetails perfectly with what Wong was saying, because I, I was uh, listening. I, I, I largely agree. I think that that last point uh, that Hong said about overreach, I think delves into the critical technologies working group. You know, we're, we're all technology and, and its role in society and, and its basis and a lot of emerging technologies basis of technological growth as well as how it can be harnessed for the military power. We're all kind of 
focusing on this and uh, the, the heart really of US-China geopolitical competition is technology to a large degree. Um, but, you know, I gave my whole presentation on how hard it is to do uh, technological cooperation and industrial cooperation between um, the US and Australia, which are, are some of the closest treaty partner allies, you know, in the world. Um, but, you know, trying to expand that then to uh, the quad framework where you have two very different powers, India, Japan, that actively have, uh, practice uh, very strong and forceful industrial policies themselves. Uh, I sort of think, you know, there are going to be limits here and we have to be careful not to overpromise on things like that in the quad. I think the quad, as Hong was saying, you know, it, it's uh, a security, it was, it was a HADR uh, grouping that's evolved into a security architecture and we're at the leadership stage and some are calling for institutionalization. I, I think that we have to nail the things that the quad have common interests on first and who, and, and following that, who have the capacity to actually act on that. And I think what Ash was talking about before, that there's some really key regional defense missions that the Quad can actively cooperate on, like um, anti-submarine warfare, like ISR and, and domain awareness of what's going on in the region. Those things that all four members have an interest in and all four members have a capacity to deliver on, um, rather than expanding into all of a sudden the Quad's going to be doing climate change and uh, is going to be doing R&D development, you know, I, and just to bring it back, I think I think it'd be very, very hard. And there's a lot of barriers to doing something meaningful around technology and R and D. Um, there's other fora and there's other venues. I think that um, that that's already taking place. Great. Thanks, Brandon. Um, so we've got ten minutes left for audience questions. We'll try to get through as many as possible. Uh, but for those we don't get to, I'd encourage you to check out uh, our more detailed analysis in the report itself at ussc.edu.au slash SOTUS, that's S-O-T-U-S, or feel free to drop us a line at us-studies at sydney.edu. Um, so this first question comes from Daniel Hurst. Um, Ash, I'll go to you first, but if anyone else wants to chime in, that would be great. Uh, but the U.S. Embassy's Chargé d'Affaires, Michael Goldman, said in an ANU podcast last week that the U.S. and Australia were discussing how they would respond to a range of military contingencies, including an outbreak of war over Taiwan. How do you envisage discussions between allies playing out on any role for Australia in such a conflict? In what room do you see uh, in the alliance for Australia to weigh up and assert its own national interest on such military contingencies? Yeah, look, thanks, Daniel. It's a, it's a great question. And, and look, the first thing to note is uh, that was an interesting data point uh, that Mike put on the record last week, um, which is to say that the US and Australia are talking about um, scenarios that include Taiwan. Um, one of the things uh, that we've been um, 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 advocating and, 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 and recommending in recent years has been that the US and Australia talk more about focused scenarios in which um, both countries have overlapping but not symmetrical national interests um, where it would be important to understand both the implications of a particular regional contingency for the regional order and for our own respective interests but also where it would be important to identify both expectation gaps 
among each other for what would happen in a crisis ahead of time and plan accordingly for ways to close that gap so that we can provide uh, whatever support that is in each country's respective national interest in a combined sense um, when it is needed. So the first thing to note is it's an extremely good sign uh, to hear that Australia and the United States are talking in those terms um, about scenarios that include Taiwan. And I would wager a guess here that um, Taiwan is one of many scenarios and, and by no means, you know, the focus of them. Um, for Australia, it was made very clear in the Defence Strategic Update in 2020, um, uh, both that our primary area of immediate strategic interest is that arc that stretches from the Indian Ocean through maritime uh, and mainland Southeast Asia, PNG and onwards to the South Pacific. And that's the area where both uh, Australia has an interest, uh, a core national interest in being able to maintain and indeed lead military operations in support of the regional order, in support of sovereignty and stability of, of our own interests and of our regional partners, including in coalitions with the United States and including where there would be an Australian leadership role but also that Australia would not foreclose its options to also support wider coalition um, efforts to support the broader Indo-Pacific regional order um, and noted specifically Northeast Asia in the Defence Strategic Update as a region which may well be in the national interest in that regard. So I think that's an important piece of context here to note that you know, for Australia there are contingencies um, 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 or potential flashpoints both close to home and further afield that are core to the quality of the order in which we exist. And it's important for us to have a range of those scenario um, planning conversations with the United States. In terms of the kinds of contributions, um, you know, that you might foresee um, with regards to a Taiwan contingency specifically, um, I would say that, you know, to not dodge the question, a lot really does depend on the way in which any sort of contingency played out. But I think it's often underestimated in the sort of sort of general public debate um, that, you know, the role of non, um, you know, the role of things that are not plat frontline platforms is going to be very important in a cross-strait um, crisis. So Australia's strategic uh, cyber capabilities, Australia's enabling intelligence and ISR assets, uh, Australia's capacity to be involved in geographically relevant but not frontline uh, cross-strait issues, for example, preventing or playing a role in the prevention of escalation further southwards of that crisis, if indeed it did become a major conflict. All of these things are important considerations um, that kind of go beyond the sort of basic question of boots on the ground. Uh, of course, I would see a role for Australia in a Taiwan crisis, not least because of the direct national interests that Australia has in the security of the first island chain and the flow on implications both for Japanese security and capacity to act southwards both in the security of the first island chain itself and the broader maritime peace in the west of the Pacific those things matter to Australia I don't think that there's been enough um, sort of again public analysis on what those implications would be for Australia but again um, we do need to be mindful of the sort of core focus of the ADF um, of our geographic sort of focus area and and and, and size those conversations uh, accordingly. Thanks Ash. Um, Brendan here's a question that came through uh, during the webinar today I'll turn to you first but uh, if we need to focus on defense industrial cooperation with the US 
Does that mean that we should favor the purchase of US military equipment over that of competitors from European manufacturers? Uh, you mentioned Biden's Buy American plan, um, and you had a recommendation in the report itself about looking uh, at other, you know, diversifying some of the funding to buy these things. So I guess what, what's your take on should we be prioritizing purchasing from the US? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's tough because there's only certain equipment we can kind of have a certain capability level um, that we can get. And we're, you know, it's, I think it's probably clear, we're probably not gonna buy, be a prime customer of Russia's. So the, the scope becomes very limited in terms of uh, who the, the buyers or, the, or who we can buy from, which is the United States. And there are some European models. And Australia has primarily in a lot of its main uh, combat platforms and systems bought from U.S. suppliers because it has been a key national security uh, interest of ours to remain interoperable with the United States to uh, a certain degree. In the sorts of projects that I'm thinking, you know, and, and I think what the trend is within the U.S. industrial base, though, is that um, we, uh, the, the, the barriers that are enacted and, and, and kind of are still there are increasingly disincentivizing um, our defense industry uh, from actually trying to sell back into the United States. And that's a problem because is the more our defense industry uh, doesn't sell into the United States, the more that our government has to consider, um, you know, other, other venues in which to buy from. For instance, these, the, uh, a really innovative program done by Boeing Australia in Queensland uh, called the Loyal Wingman, uh, very capable platform. Uh, done by Australian engineers, even though it's an American company, it's all Australian engineers, so it's being encapsulated uh, from U.S. ITAR restrictions. Uh, we're now doing program exchanges with the United Kingdom over that and trying to maybe say uh, the Europeans are interested in that, where there has been some reluctance. I think it has been entered into a U.S. Uh, procurement competition now, but I think that that was done in a very specific way to try and encapsulate it and separate it out from the U.S. extraterritorial ITAR laws. So there are there are those sorts of barriers that the more that remains in place, the more U.S. allies like Australia uh, and the innovative technologies we have here, we won't be incentivized to sell the best version back into the United States. We'll probably sell it to other partners. So, um, yeah. Great, thanks, Brendan. Um, Huang, this is one I'm keen to get your uh, perspective on. Uh, it's from Damien Payne. Um, and says so some say that developing defense technologies may undermine the security of our region and start an arms race. What is your view? And particularly, I think your perspective on the broader regional perspective on it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I think um, the concern about uh, raising arms uh, race has been in place for some time already. Um, uh, whether we, with this or not, I think with uh, Chinese um, construction of the artificial islands in the South China Sea, as well as more presence of uh, all kind, um, all kind of um, aircraft carriers from all kind of countries. Uh, most recently, you know, we have ships coming from Europe as well. Um, I think you know it's it's building into the broader trend that that, that has been. Uh, concerning the region already. Now, I think what is, uh, what is now different is that uh, COVID complicates things um, a lot because um, 
we know that during last year there has been some procurement within Southeast Asian countries such as Thailand, but um, also potentially um, Indonesia and others that had to forego some of their plant procurement because of the budget constraints and of they have uh, individual allocations of um, budget that went through uh, to uh, saving the economies. We don't know how long that trend will, will last, whether it's just, um, you know, under disruption uh, caused by COVID and countries will come back to their original uh, trend of um, defense spending, uh, or uh, we are facing a region where, um, you know, there would be more um, priorities uh, post-COVID with uh, the recovery, other prior economic priorities, making their decisions about defense and defense spending and upgrade more difficult. Um, if the second, the latter is the case, then we, we might be facing a region where, you know, defense capability will be, um, you know, a big gap between what, what is China and other regional countries spending and uh, those ones that are more severely uh, hit by COVID or um, having a more difficult time recovering from the um, COVID-induced economic uh, difficulties. So it is a region in flux and the, uh, the question, primary question about defense and defense spending um, is one that would be directly affected. Thank you so much. Um, so we're out of time. We're right on 11 o'clock. I'm sorry we can get to all the questions, but like I said, please feel free to check out the report for more detail or email us at us-studies at sydney.edu. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, we'd like to invite you all to our upcoming From Trump Land to Biden Land webinar, which will be on Thursday, the 22nd of April, with Zoe Daniel, co-author of the new book, Readings from Trump Land, in conversation with Holly Ransom named by AFR as one of Australia's 100 most influential women. Uh, be sure to visit our website for other upcoming events and publications, and as well as the recordings from today's webinar, which will be posted there once we're ready. And please do subscribe to our webinar invitation list to make sure you don't miss any events in the future. Thanks again for your time today, and we hope to see you at another event soon. Thanks. <laughs>